So when I was a kid, I could turn anything into a competition. Anything. And that wasn't just true for me. Most of my friends were the same way. Anything could, could become a, a proving ground, a competition. Uh, who could get the highest grade on a test? And if we couldn't get the highest grade, well, then who could turn their test in the fastest? Right? That was a good consolation prize. I may not get any questions right, but at least I'll run my paper up to the teacher first. Right? I win. Uh, who's the fastest kid on the playground? Who has the coolest assortment of snacks in their lunchbox that day? Whatever it took, we could turn it in to something, right? But my all-time favorite, still to this day, didn't actually have to do with us so much as it had to do with our dads. Now, some of y'all already know where I'm going with this. We would look at each other, and we'd say, my dad can what? Beat up your dad. Isn't that such a strange taunt? Uh, You know, there's no way I was going to say I can beat you up because then I might have to prove that, but surely my dad can take your dad. Y'all, there's just something about, especially for little boys, there's something about finding our sense of strength, our confidence, our identity, not so much in ourselves, but in dad. My dad can take yours. Uh, I may not be much, but my dad is something. Uh, A lot of little boys know that feeling, okay? You you probably said something similar growing up, perhaps. Um, But y'all, as we we close out Romans 8 today, this is where we land. The Apostle Paul has told us already in this chapter that by faith in Jesus Christ, we are now children of God. We call God our heavenly Father. And in fact, the term that Paul uses is the word Abba, which is the most intimate term For daddy, we are God's beloved children, which means for us that our sense of strength, our confidence, our identity, our future, all of what we are, is not built upon ourselves, but it's wrapped up in him. And so Paul, in Romans 8, if you've been with us, and we always put our our messages on our website too, but all throughout Romans 8, especially the latter half of the chapter, Paul has been talking about suffering, God's grace, God's promises, through suffering, and Paul has given a very real and sober look at suffering. He doesn't brush it aside. He doesn't pretend it away. It's real, and he deals with it. The fact is that we live in a world of sin and brokenness, of pain and trial, and if we're honest with ourselves, we see that we are weak. We cannot overcome in our own strength. We don't have what it takes. But God, the promise of this chapter, but God is powerfully working through it all, to bring about his glorious result. And so Paul is writing here in the latter verses of this chapter, he's writing words of assurance to grant us confidence in, in, again, not in ourselves, but in Christ. And the end of this chapter is is really amazing because what we're going to see, we're going to see in Paul what I would call a holy arrogance. We're going to see a boastful challenge in his words to anyone and anything that would try to stand between God and his children, Paul says, our dad will whip its tail. Our dad's got it. He can take it out. If your hope, if your faith, if your identity is found in Jesus Christ, the truth is that there is nothing that can derail God's grace toward you. And so what I want us to just, we're going to just read the whole section here in one uh, piece 
before we go through the details of it. And I'm going to start back where we, where we started last Sunday, Romans 8, 28. We're going to read through uh, from verse 28 through the rest of the chapter, because I just want us to get us a big picture view here before we look at the details. Listen to how Paul concludes this amazing chapter. Paul says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom God predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with Christ freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're dismissed. We could, all, we could really be, get to lunch early right after that. Oh, my goodness. Um, Something Paul does often, he does it especially here, he asks questions in an effort to drive home his point. He asks questions that have an obvious answer, rhetorical questions. We ought to know what he's getting at. Uh, He's not asking because he doesn't know. He's trying to show us something here. Look at verse 31 again. What then shall we say to these things? What is there left to say? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, to be clear right there, Paul is not saying that no one is against us. Surely Satan is against us. In many ways, the world is against us. If we know our own heart, we are against ourselves. Our flesh is against us often, right? We we feel that. We still sin, and we know the reality of this battle that's ongoing. So Paul is not saying that nothing comes against us. There's disease, there's death, there's depression. We could go on and on all day long. But here's the point. If God is on your side, if God is for you, then who or what can successfully come against you? And the, it's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is no one, nothing. Something may come against you, sure, but it can't succeed because God is for you. And verse 32 is the proof of that promise. He, God, who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with Christ freely give us all things? 
God did not spare His own Son, Jesus, but delivered Him over for us. Y'all, this is the basis for our salvation. This is it. That in the face of our insurmountable sin, God gave for us His own Son. The most treasured gift, the most precious gift possible, God gave. And God didn't just send Jesus into the world. God delivered Him over. That means that Jesus did not come merely to live as a good example for us, but he came to die. He came to suffer. He was sent as a sacrifice. And this is something that we ought to meditate on all the time, not just Sunday to Sunday, not just every day, but throughout every day. This ought to be fresh on our hearts that when we think about the cross, the cross with all its ugliness and cruelty, Surely God would spare his own son from that kind of horror, right? Surely God would rescue Jesus from that kind of injustice. But here we see it. He was delivered over for us. That means that at the cross, Jesus was not rescued so that you and I would be. Jesus was not spared so that we would be spared. He took upon himself our condemnation and he condemned sin in his own flesh so that we might be set free from sin and death. And so, y'all, for what Paul is doing right here in verse 32, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God did not spare his own son, the most precious treasure in the universe, if God gave him over for you, how is God now going to fail you? How is it that God, in the lesser things, would hold out on you or fall short or somehow change his mind about you? If God gave us Jesus, he most certainly will give us all the rest, all of his grace and his blessing and his glory. The greater proves the lesser. And this is what Paul means when he says that God is for us. It's not that God comes alongside you in life and merely supports your cause, that he comes alongside and helps you make better decisions. Surely God does that too. Oh my goodness. But that's not this. For God to be for you means that God loves you so much that he has committed himself utterly to you. God has held nothing back. There's no percentage of God and his grace and his love and his mercy that he's holding back until you climb enough rungs of the ladder that you'll receive the rest. He has loved you and committed himself fully to you. Even his own son was not too great a price to pay that he might make you his child. He is for you. And if that's true, Paul begs the question, who can come against you? If that's true, then what are we afraid of? And again, we see it in verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. I try to imagine this, that on the last day, uh, the devil himself stands up against you. He's got a book in his hand. And you're able to see that on the spine of that book is written something that makes you very uncomfortable. It's your name. The devil's got the book on you. And all he does, he simply stands up and turns page by page and pronounces aloud what is in the book. All of your sin, 
even the stuff that nobody else ever knew about, the stuff that was hidden away from the world, it's all written down, and Satan gladly declares it in open air. And as he does, your heart, just like mine, our hearts break, and we feel profound grief because we know what's in that book is true. We did it. But then a loud and definitive voice overrules and says, justified. That's what Paul is saying right here. God is the judge, not Satan. And God, the one true judge, who knows what's in the book. He knows every single thing about us, even the stuff we did that we forgot about and never confessed. God knows it all. But he looks upon us, his children, and he says, justified. He declares us righteous because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ for us. And so no one on that day, no one will be able to charge you with anything because God has already secured you in his righteousness. He has already sealed you and made you his own. No matter what the book says, it is God who justifies Are we beginning to to kind of see a pattern here in, in Paul's language? Look at verse 34. Here we go again. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, or also who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Very familiar story in John chapter 8, where Jesus encounters a woman who was caught in adultery A lot of bloodthirsty men bring this woman into Jesus' presence. She's been caught in the very act. She's a sinner. And they've all got stones in their hands. They're ready to put her to death. That's what the law demands. And they're trying to trap Jesus in this scenario here. What do you say we ought to do? And you remember what Jesus says? He looks at the men standing around, and he says, Let he who is without sin cast the first stone." And then one by one, the men begin to drop their stones and they walk away, right? Then Jesus looks at this woman, it's just the two of them now, and he says, woman, who is there to condemn you? You remember what she says? No one, Lord. That's what Paul's saying about all of us right here. Who is there to condemn us? No one. Because Jesus died and he was raised. He was raised from the dead. He's ascended to glory and he now intercedes for us. That means that Jesus Christ, this very moment, here where I stand, Jesus Christ stands for me. Knowing that I'm a sinner, knowing that I continue to sin, knowing that there are still battles that I face in my own corrupt heart that I have not transcended yet and never will. I'm not any more worthy of God's grace today than I was the day I got saved. I want y'all to know that. You're not either. That's not how we got here. Not by our worthiness. We need an intercessor. We need someone to stand between and to advocate for us on our behalf. And that's what Jesus Christ is doing right now. He died. He was raised. He ascended to glory. And he now intercedes for you. No one can condemn you now so long as Jesus Christ stands on your behalf. And he does that for everyone who calls upon his name in faith. You are his. And and, and so what or who could possibly condemn you if Christ is there interceding for you? 
Do you see why I, I said Paul is speaking with a holy arrogance? Are you, are you picking up on that right here? Paul is not, is not tiptoeing around these issues here. This, he is boasting. There's a confidence in his words. And I, as I read Romans 8 here at the end, I continually think to myself, man, I want to be like that. I want to have that kind of confidence. But then I question myself, well, what's stopping me? What would stop any of us from having the kind of boastful, holy arrogance that Paul has right here? Any one of us could, could talk just like this and really believe it. Why? Because Paul's not talking about himself. We're not talking about ourselves here. We're not patting ourselves on the back that no one can condemn, no one can bring a charge because of me. No, it's because of Christ. The arrogance, the defiance in these words that we're seeing in Romans 8, it comes because we've built everything on dad's shoulders. It's built on what God has done for us and what he's promised to do for us. And so we don't boast in ourselves. We have no reason to do that, but we can boast loudly, defiantly, we can boast in our Savior. Anything, anyone that might try to come against doesn't stand a chance. That was true for Paul. It's equally true for you if your faith is in Jesus. And so we're, we're, we're observing some very high and lofty things in Romans 8, some great promises. It, we're tempted perhaps to look at what we're reading here and to think there's, this, is a dream, this is too good to be true. It's like a dream scenario. It exists somewhere else, but not here. It's not something I can get my feet on or my hands around, and that's where I want to stop us. Paul, is, he wants to be careful here to bring this down to earth, to real life. This is not a dream scenario for us. This is operational. This is practical. And we see it in verse 35. This touches reality. Who will separate us from the love of Christ, he says? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, God, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Uh, this is not a hypothetical list, as much as we wish it were. This is not a hypothetical. This is real stuff. And in truth, the Apostle Paul himself encountered everything on this list. Everything from top to bottom, Paul experienced it. Uh, and so here's, here's the truth. We, you and I may never be lashed across the back 39 times for our faith. Chances are we won't. Uh, you and I may never die as martyrs by the sword. But Paul did. Paul did. And it did not shake his confidence. It did not shake his holy arrogance in what Jesus Christ had done for him. In fact, those things that happened to Paul, they only emboldened him and strengthened him all the more because in his weakness he found strength in Christ. But he's dealing with us just the bare facts of reality. This can indeed happen to us. None of us are exempt. That's why he quotes from Psalm 44. The idea is clear. That for your sake, God, we're being put to death. There are genuine threats that come to those who follow Christ. There's a very real present possibility that every good thing in our lives can be taken away from us, from our property to our health to our family to our very life. We have Christians all over the world experiencing that threat today, and we shouldn't convince ourselves otherwise. This is real, okay? And so I just, let's just examine this for a second. It's too important to just skip past it. 
Uh, I've said this before probably multiple times the last few weeks. There's an, there's an unspoken belief that a lot of us have, it's in my heart, that says, if I really love God, if I serve God, bad things won't happen to me. God loves me and he won't let bad stuff happen to me. Um, that's just not true. And Romans 8 is, is a great proof text against that. That loving God does not safeguard us from bad things. Or we may think, well, you know, sure, bad things happen, but not the really bad stuff, not to me. But again, there's no exception here. Read Hebrews 11 if we want to get an idea of what happens to faithful people, both great things and horrible things. The scripture is clear. The scripture tells us the truth about that. But Paul is saying without reservation, even though these bad things happen to Christians just as they happen to the rest, there's a deeper thing going on here. It's not just bad stuff as we see it. Something's behind it. And that's why this, I, maybe I'm reading too much in. I don't think so. Look at verse 35 again. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Then he gives us this long list of terrible things. But the things are really what's, aren't they? They're not who's. They're what's. You know, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, those are what's that might happen to us. But Paul asks the question, who? And my belief is that Paul has in mind a certain who here. He's talking about Satan. He's talking about the devil. That it is the devil's desire, ultimately, to separate us from the love of Christ. So that bad things that happen, the devil's ultimate aim would be just that. If you've ever read the book of Job, that's how the book of Job begins. That Satan comes to God and says, there's this man named Job and he worships you. He praises you, yes, but only because you bless him. Take your hand of blessing away and he'll curse you to your face. That, Satan really believed that. And of course, Job, through all his trials, did not curse God and die, but he remained faithful even though he was uh, put through the ringer. Right? Y'all, so that's, that is Satan's desire for all of us. For all of us, that we would be torn away, not, not merely that he would cause you harm, that bad things would happen to you. That's, that's, he's, he's pleased with that, but that's not his ultimate goal. His ultimate goal is to separate you from the love of Christ, that you might turn and curse Jesus and die in your pain and suffering. That's what he wants. That would be his ultimate victory. He's working overtime for that purpose. But look at the promise, verse 37. But in all these things, everything on the list, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Paul is saying, y'all, we don't just survive hardship. We overwhelmingly conquer it. Um, this is a, a, a phrase, that phrase, overwhelmingly conquer, it shows up only one time in the whole Bible. It's right here in Romans 8. This is the only time it, it shows up. It means to superabound in victory. Not just to win the battle and scrape on by, but to crush the enemy into fine powder, right? What Paul is saying is that Satan is not merely a foe to be vanquished, but he's going to be crushed into nothing. That's why at the end of Romans, Paul says, may the God of all peace crush Satan under your feet. Isn't that a great verse? We ought to hold that dear to us. May the God of all peace crush Satan under your feet. You are a conqueror over the trials and the one who brings the trials because we are in Christ through him who loved us. Y'all, when suffering comes, 
Let's be honest about ourselves. Our love for the Lord may wax and wane. We're not always at our best. We don't always love him as we should. We wish it weren't so, but we're just going to be honest for a moment, okay? Our love for Jesus waxes and wanes, but his love for you does not. His faithfulness toward you does not change. We conquer through him who loved us, and his love cannot be diminished, diffused, corrupted, or lost. And that's why Paul so confidently just lays down the gauntlet, no matter what comes your way, should Satan himself bring pain into your life, he will be crushed to fine powder under your feet, because Jesus Christ loves you. And that's why Paul can say it uh, with such certainty here at the end. Look at verse 38. I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Do you see how far-reaching this goes? He leaves no stone unturned here. What, what is it that has the power to tear you away from the love of Jesus? How about life? Life with all its pain and anxiety and uncertainty. What about death? Well, surely death. I mean, death is so final. It's so, it's so harsh, right? Death surely can do it. What about, what about the spiritual realm? What about angels and principalities and powers? Are there unseen forces and unseen persons that would have such great power and authority over your life that they could tear you away from Jesus? I mean, if anybody could, it would be them. What about space and time? What about height and depth? What about things present and things to come? Can there ever be such distance between me and God that God simply cannot cross the gap? And Paul, of course, these are rhetorical questions, right? The answer is obvious. We ought to know it without having to ask, without having to do any research here. Paul is being defiant against these things. There's nothing, no created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And that's how we can stand firm on what we've been promised, no matter what comes our way. I quoted um, the old preacher from New England, Jonathan Edwards. I quoted him last week. I'm going to quote him again, again here from the same sermon, actually. Uh, this is a little more in-depth, and so I'm going to put this on the screen for us. Listen to what Edward says about these truths. He says, The Christian may look down upon all the whole army of worldly afflictions under his feet, however great they are and however numerous. Let them all join their forces together against him and put on their most rueful and dreadful habits, forms and appearances, and spend all their strength vigor and violence with endeavors to do him any real hurt or mischief. And it is all in vain. He may triumph over them all, knowing this. Light afflictions, which are but for a moment, shall only work out for him a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I want you to do yourself a favor today. I'm going to do it too. I'll do it if you do it. I want us to go back, take five minutes, ten minutes today, and read back through Romans 8, the whole thing, 39 verses. 
And my heart, my hope for us is that we would see today as we look at this great chapter, this chapter is not filled with a bunch of commands for us to obey. There are other chapters that do that, not this one. This is a chapter filled with promises for us to treasure. This is Paul's megaphone to the church. He is shouting aloud for us to hear all that God has done for us in Christ and all that he will most certainly do for us because of him. And I want us, as we walk back through it today, I want us to ask God, our Father, that he might grant us the kind of faith, the kind of joy, the kind of boldness and confidence that reflects what we see in this chapter. That this would not be true for some other people, true for the Apostle Paul perhaps, but not for me. No, if you are in Christ, then you don't get to decide if it's true for you. It is. That God would make us faithful and joyful and bold and confident in what is true. It's true because he makes it so. And understand this, friends, that, that our lives, your life is not the sum total of your actions and your circumstances. Your life is founded upon and built on and found in Jesus. And therefore, your life is not just what you've done and what you will do. What has happened to you and what is to come. No. Those things have no power over you if you are in Christ because your life rests upon your heavenly Father who loved you and who sent His Son for you. Your life is built upon grace and power beyond imagination because of what's been done for us. And if you have received Jesus Christ by faith, then I want you to stand on this truth both today and forevermore that God himself is eternally, unshakably, unchangeably for you. For you. And that means nothing can come against you. In the scripture it says, those who hope in the Lord will not be disappointed. What an awesome understatement. Because he gave himself for us. Who can be against us? Let's pray. Father, would you grant us this morning not sinful arrogance. It's not, this is not built on us. But would you grant us such confidence that we would be like Paul? That we could ask this, these questions with a smile? Not because life is easy, Lord, we know it's not. Not because nothing comes against us. But Lord, we can smile and we can, we can stand firm because we know nothing can succeed against you. We are yours and you are for us. Lord, will you grant us, especially in, in the unique pains and trials and difficulties that we are facing right now, Lord, will you grant us um, strength and courage? Lord, will you grant us the strange joy that ought not to be? We, we shouldn't be happy. We shouldn't be content. We shouldn't be hopeful when life is hard, and yet we are.
We can be because of what we have in Jesus. Lord, will you, will you fill us with those new realities, with that new life, Lord, that, that, uh, that we can truly rest upon your great, broad, powerful shoulders. That whatever comes our way, Dad will take it. Lord, I pray this morning in hope um, that, that we know this truth in, in, a, in an intimate way, that we know you, Father, in an intimate way, that these are not hypothetical ideas, that these are not uh, wish-fulfillment dreams kind of ideas, that, we, that, we, that this is concrete for us upon which we stand. And so, Father, I, I do ask your grace if there's, a, if there's a person in this room who does not know these things to be true, Lord, that you might draw them to yourself in faith, that they might receive Jesus Christ this morning and enter into life eternal. Um, not, as a, not as a goal to be achieved, but as a gift to be received. And that, Lord, you'd freely give it here at Harvest Church. Father, thank you that we do not stand upon our own uh, moral records. We don't stand upon our own uh, strength and ability that our boasting is in Christ and therefore we can have confidence forever. Thank you, Jesus, that you died, that you were raised, that you ascended to glory and you now intercede and therefore nothing can defeat those who trust in you. Lord, give us a confidence that we've never known before because we have stood upon the rock together. And we ask it in your mighty and precious, gracious, saving name. Amen.